you have your Bibles, open up to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. Nathan so kindly read to us the first 16 verses already. So we'll begin our reading this morning in verse 17, even though we'll be looking at the whole chapter. If you don't have your own copy of God's Word, you can take the Pew Bible uh, there in front of you, and uh, you can open up to page 1247 there in the Pew Bible in front of you. 1247 in the Pew Bible in front of you, and that that will allow you to, to read along there with us as we look to this text. As you're opening up, I just want to say what a joy it is to get to worship the Lord with you today uh, on the first Lord's Day of the new year. What a fitting way uh, this is to kick off a new year, gathered among the Lord's people on the Lord's Day, singing songs to the Lord, praying to the Lord, hearing reports on the nationwide work of the Lord, and now getting ready to hear the preaching of the Word of the Lord. What a fitting way that is for us to kick off 2019, a year that I hope and pray will be a year of great faithfulness and fruitfulness for First Baptist Church. That's my prayer. I hope it'll be yours as well. If you have your Bibles open there, why don't you go ahead and stand with me out of the reverence to the reading of the Word of our God. Several verses, if you're unable to stand, God will understand, I'm sure. This is my rule, not His, and so uh, if you need to be seated, we certainly won't judge you. Hear the word of the Lord beginning in the end of 16 and into verse 17. So they took Jesus and He went out, bearing His own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified Him. And with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. And Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. And when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And so the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, Behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head 
and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another Scripture says, They will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Pray together. Oh Lord our God, would you please open our hearts and minds today to receive your word and to be changed by it. Oh God, let us come to the crossroads of the death of your Son and not leave the same. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Jesus told his disciples and Therefore, he told us in John chapter 14 that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And we've seen the truth on trial. We've seen the life laid down willingly. And this morning, we behold here the way at the skull, the truth nailed to the cross, the life snuffed out. Here we behold the very Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, eternally begotten of the Father, eternally co-equal in glory with God, the very Word by which God created the world, the Logos of God, John tells us, eternally glorious, eternally omnipotent, eternally omniscient, Here we see the very Son of God, sinless, innocent, perfect, put to death by sinful man. Here we behold the centerpiece of the Gospel of John, that which all of John's Gospel has been sort of sliding toward as we've studied it, and that is the death of Jesus. But not only is this the centerpiece of John's gospel, brothers and sisters, this is the centerpiece of human history, at least one part of the, 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 the picture of all that human history has been moving toward. Death and the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And next Sunday, we'll talk about the resurrection. And we must look at all of them together, but we recognize here the center of history, the center of the cosmos. God's redemptive plan for the ages is finally revealed to be the death of His Son. So your preachers and teachers and love to study the Bible, and as you look at a chapter like John 19, it's sort of one of those situations where we all recognize you could either preach 40 sermons on this or you could preach one sermon on this. There's countless untold material in these 42 verses. Between now and Easter, I want to encourage each of you to do a thorough study of the death of Jesus. Take, take Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and, and compare them and, and contrast them and try to get a fully orbed, beautiful picture of what it meant for Jesus to die for you. We all recognize there's so much we can look at today. And if you guys want to go grab some lunch and come back, I'll talk about the death of Christ all day. Just be sure to let me know so I come back too. But in all sincerity, what I want to do is I want to look at this chapter today in a broad sense. I want to give you some themes to reflect on as you study the death of Christ yourself. I want to show you four things about the death of Jesus that are revealed in this passage that I think will give you uh, a greater faith and a greater trust and a greater love for Jesus because of what He's done for you. Four broad things about this passage. I, I normally like to go kind of verse by verse, section by section in here, but, but today, just, just for today, if you don't mind, I, I want to just draw some things out of this passage, and I'll, I'll show you where they are in the text. You'll see they're all here in the text. We're not abandoning expository preaching here, but I do want you to see some themes here that I hope will lead you to worship God in a greater way and commune with Jesus in a closer way. Here's the first point this morning. Here's the first thing I want you to see. Jesus' death was God's design. Jesus' death was God's design. We, We see this throughout the Gospel of John, but we really start to see it sort of reaching a fever pitch here in John chapter 19 in the death of Jesus. In fact, one thing you'll notice that might sort of be a pattern in John is the closer we get to Jesus' death, the more John likes to quote the Old Testament. His according to the Scriptures, or to fulfill the Scriptures, they seem to pick up the pace. In fact, you see several instances of that right here in this passage. And so one thing that I believe the Apostle John is trying to help us see, John the Evangelist is trying to point out to us, is that Jesus' death was by God's design, and he's showing us that through the testimony of the Scriptures. The Bible said this would happen. And so if you walked through this passage, if you just were to slowly study this passage, you would see, for example, in verse 24 of John chapter 19, that as the soldiers cast lots, they're fulfilling the Scriptures. Brothers and sisters, it's no mistake that the Scripture they're fulfilling is the 22nd Psalm. The very psalm that we learn from the Synoptic Gospels that Jesus Himself quoted from the cross. We learn that when Jesus cries out, I thirst, asking uh, for, this, for something to drink, we learn that He is 
he is quoting a psalm. He's reflecting on a psalm as he, as he cries out, I thirst. And John says in verse 28, that was to fulfill the Scriptures. Verse 36, when they come to do the common practice of breaking the legs to speed the death of those who are being crucified, John says they didn't break Jesus' legs. Why? Because the Scripture says not one of His bones will be broken. And also to fulfill in verse 37, they will look on Him whom they have pierced. Jesus' death was God's design. Several years ago, more than a decade ago now, I suppose, I was a young college student, and I was having coffee with a gentleman, a young gentleman who's probably late 20s at this point, at that point, uh, who was a Muslim. And he and I were talking about the Gospels. And he kept over and over and over again trying to convince me that Jesus was just this sort of helpless person who was being persecuted, who didn't want to die, who didn't want to go through this. And certainly, Jesus expresses anguish, and, and, and nobody wants to suffer the wrath of God. Nobody is sitting around just waiting for it, excited about it. And so, Jesus certainly experienced anguish over this, but at the same time, we see so clearly in the Bible that this is the design of God. I've encountered people over the years who have called the view of the atonement that I hold, which is substitutionary atonement. The idea that Jesus atoned for our sins by being our substitute. He took the penalty for our sins. He suffered the wrath of God on the cross. That cup that Jesus drank from, that imagery is right in the Bible for that cup representing the wrath of the Father. Some people have, over the years, called that divine child abuse. Divine child abuse. What a way to mock the Word of God. Brothers and sisters, this was not divine child abuse unless you have a, a view of the Trinity that's just downright heretical. That's nowhere near the Bible. The Father didn't come up with this plan on His own. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are all working in concert to bring this about. It is the very plan and design of God. On top of that, not only do you have the testimony of the Scriptures, but you only ha also have Jesus' own willingness. Jesus' own willingness to die. In fact, you even see in verse 30, something I, I want you to see in verse 30. Jesus says, I thirst in 28. There's a jar of sour wine, and they, they give Him some. And then in verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, He said, it is finished and he bowed his head, and what did he do? He gave up his spirit. No one takes my life from me, the Lord said. I lay it down willingly. And Jesus is retaining his agency even in death. He was not necessarily killed in this moment. He gave up his spirit. He gave his life up willingly. He laid his life down because he chose to. This is not divine child abuse or happenstance or the mere will of man. This is not the exaltation of Rome or the, the beauty of the political machinations of the Jewish leaders. No, brothers and sisters, it was God's design that Jesus would die for you. It was God's design that Jesus would suffer the wrath of God for you. 
There was no discrepancy in the Godhead, no disagreement. It wasn't a two-to-one vote. No, brothers and sisters, Jesus laid his life down willingly of his own accord for you. Jesus' death was God's design. But another thing I want you to know this morning, the second point is this. Jesus' death is historical. Jesus' death is historical. Now this may sound like something that seems like a silly point to you. We're in Gadsden, Alabama. We're at First Baptist Church. Most of us believe that Jesus was real, and on top of that, that He was the Son of God. I hope all of us believe that, at least those of us who are members here. If some of you don't, but you're here, that's great. We're happy to have you here. But here's the reality. It, it becomes important that Jesus' death is historical, not only in the history of the church, but even today. Because there are people who would claim that Jesus never even existed, that His crucifixion never took place. There would be people early, early, early in the church called docetists who would say that Jesus only appeared to be in the flesh. He wasn't actually in the flesh. And so one of the things that John is going to great lengths to demonstrate here is that this is a real event that happened to a real man in a real place at a real time. Notice the eyewitness testimony of John. As you read John chapter 19, I want you to really take a look at the passage and and ask yourself, tell me, if the evidence presented here does not seem to you like first-hand knowledge. First-hand knowledge. John gives us details like this. The time and the day and the, the time of the day, the day, the specific location of the crucifixion. He gives us very specific details about the machinations between the Jews and Pilate. He, He gives us Information about the activity of the soldiers surrounding the Lord's possessions. He gives us information about the women standing at the cross, their names. He gives us the words of Jesus from the cross. In fact, some of the other gospel writers call it a loud cry, and John gives the very word to tell Stein. He he gives us this picture. There's a jar of sour wine sitting there. He, He gives us this picture of the soldiers piercing with the spear. He gives us the seemingly scandalous involvement, not for Jesus, but for them, of Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. And and there's more. If you were to sit down and look at this and just see the overwhelming amount of details just in John chapter 19, they they give the appearance of authenticity. Now, there's certainly much more study to be done, and, and those books and resources are available to you if you're a skeptic. But I want you to know just at first glance, as you read this, not only that, but also there is a really tight harmonization though some would have you believe otherwise, but there's a really tight harmonization, in my opinion, between the the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John's account of the death of Jesus. I I really believe, and I I say all this to you to say, I I really believe that John went to great lengths to show us the historicity, that 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 the crucifixion was a historical event. John, on top of that, With all the focus in his gospel on Jesus' divinity, he goes to great lengths to show his humanity. When his side was pierced, what flowed out? Water and blood. That's such a clear picture of humanity. What specter, what ghost would pour out blood and water when pierced with a spear? I, I, I believe that 
Jesus' death was God's design, and I believe that Jesus' death is a historical event. I believe it really happened. Third of all, and the third thing I want you to know, Jesus' death turns the world upside down. Jesus' death turns the world upside down. Pilate insists on mocking the Lord. And, and one thing you've got to understand is Pilate seems so reticent, and certainly he was reticent to give in to the Jewish leaders on crucifying Jesus over and over again. He sort of tried to, pardon the pun, but wash his hands of the situation. He, he, he tried to encourage them to do the right thing. In fact, John says Pilate tried to set Jesus free. And yet, in his attempt to do that, Pilate decides to mock the Lord in order to mock his Jewish opponents. And so what does he do? He has a crown of thorns made and placed upon his head. They put him in a purple robe. They cry out, Hail, King of the Jews! Sort of a mock mockery of the idea of Hail, Caesar! Hail, King of the Jews! He writes, he writes on this On this placard, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And he does so in multiple languages so that multiple people can see and read. Brothers and sisters, this was Roman dominance in its purest form. This was the Roman Empire demonstrating their subjugation of their enemies showing and demonstrating how great they were. This was, in so many ways, a demonstration of one of the pinnacles of human power in human history. This is one of the greatest empires that has ever existed. Throughout the Bible, you'll see Rome referred to oftentimes, in, in the New Testament at least, as the pinnacle of human power. Now think about this. Man in his greatest religious form, in his greatest political form, mocking this carpenter, having him flogged, having him beaten, twice it seems. And yet, what's the reality? The Bible teaches us that Jesus was made perfect. He was made Savior he was made deliverer. He was made king of kings and lord of lords. How? Through his suffering. Do you see the great irony that John wants you to see as you read this passage? The true king of the universe is being humiliated by Bush League magistrates who seem to be at the peak of their power, but are actually securing their own undoing through the destruction of this man. The true king of the Jews, rejected by his own people. The light of the world, snuffed out by the darkness. The very logos of God, killed by ignorant men. Jesus, receiving his crown through a crown of thorns. Jesus, receiving his ruling sword through the sword of Rome. 
But brothers and sisters, it's even more upside down than that. The irony twists even deeper. Because the defeated one who was dead is actually defeating death through his own death. He's undoing the very thing that is undoing him. The light is snuffed out, but the light is shining even more brightly than ever. Even in the darkness, even in the darkness of the tomb, it cannot suppress a light that will burst forth, as the hymn says, in glorious day, in mere days. Man's greatest hour of folly, man's deepest day of sin, man's most despicable and sinful moment is also at the same time man's finest hour, man's only hope, man's only forgiveness secured. Our worst day was our best day. The death of Jesus has turned the world upside down. By taking the pinnacle of man's rebellion and turning it into God's ultimate victory over sin, death, and the devil. Brothers and sisters, don't for a moment, don't for a moment miss that Jesus' true power and true greatness is found in His ultimate humiliation and therefore in His suffering. It's His humility that has made Him great. The cross turns the world upside down, and on top of that, it turns our lives upside down. Because our life so often is defined by striving for what the world values most. And yet when the world finally gets what it wants, the world could not be more wrong. The world could not be more wrong. And yet by God's grace... We can get what we need, not through striving, but by faith, through ceasing striving and trusting God. The cross turns the world upside down. And that marks a reality for each and every one of us this morning. That's my fourth point, and it's this reality. Jesus' death is a crossroads. Jesus' death is is a crossroads. Pilate had the choice. He came to a crossroads and he had the choice. What do I do? Do I cling to temporary power? Eventually Pilate was deposed and exiled. Didn't work out so well for him. Eventually Rome fell. But Pilate stood face to face with true power. With genuine innocence. And he glibly dismissed the idea by saying, what is truth? Clinging to temporary power. Pilate came to a crossroads and he chose the wrong path. The Jews came to a crossroads. And the Jews, in rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ, blasphemed their Lord even more directly. In chapter 19, verse 15, when they say, We have no king but Caesar. In other words, in order to kill this fake Messiah, we'll even say we'll never have a Messiah. We have no king But Caesar, the Jews came to a crossroads and they chose the wrong path. Two quiet, secret Christians. Perhaps they were members of the Sanhedrin. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus came to a crossroads. Joseph of Arimathea had been a quiet, silent disciple of Jesus out of fear. Nicodemus had come to the Lord at night where no one could see him coming to speak to the Lord. And yet here, publicly, 
Before everyone, Joseph of Arimathea asks for the Lord's body. Nicodemus buys the spices to prepare the Lord's body. They came to a crossroads and came out into the light. The disciples here meet Jesus at a crossroads. Their lives will be transformed by the death of Jesus. And this morning, brothers and sisters, you meet Jesus at a crossroads. The death of Christ is not something that you can choose not to reckon with. Each and every one of you this morning has come to a place where you must have a choice. What will I do with Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified? What will I do with the death of this man? Pilate calls out to all of us today, Behold the man, and though he is dead and though he was wrong, he still speaks. Because what Pilate was trying to do when he pulled out this farce of a king was he tried to get people to say, This man doesn't deserve to die. Can't you just see him as innocent and helpless as he really is? Brothers and sisters, as you behold the man today, as you look to Jesus, as you look to His cross, as you behold the man, you know something that Pilate didn't know. You know the end of the story. And you know that at this very moment, the man who there before Pilate looked like a farce of a king, defeated, beaten, bruised, bloodied, subjugated, nailed to the cross, crucified, dead, wrapped in cloths, treated with spices, buried in a tomb. You know that He didn't stay there. You know that He's not as harmless as Pilate thought. In fact, even now, He's a threat to every one of our lives, even now, to upend it and turn it upside down. But brothers and sisters, for the better, for the good, to change everything about our lives today and forever. My friends, I want you to know this morning the way for all of us, the truth for all of us, the life for all of us leads through the place of the skull. And I want you to know today, if you want life, if you want resurrection, you must first embrace your own death through repentance and faith. But if you will, Jesus promises, any of those who come to Him, He will in no way cast out. He promises life and life more abundant. So if you want to follow the way, Remember this, the way leads to the skull. But on the other side of the skull is life and life more abundant. I want to offer an invitation this morning. If you've never trusted Jesus for the first time, I want to offer you this time to come and turn from your sins and repentance and turn to God in faith through Jesus Christ. And I believe He will save you. Second of all, you may be a Christian. You may say, Pastor, I've just not been living out the death of Christ in my life like I should, or I I just want to pray considering the death of Jesus. This altar is open for you today. And finally, you may be looking for a church home. I would love for you to come forward this morning so I could talk to you about what it means for you to be a member here at First Baptist Church. After this prayer, I want to invite you to come. Let's pray together.
O Lord our God, we thank you so much for Jesus Christ and we thank you for his gospel. And God, we pray that you would move in our hearts, our minds today, Lord. If there's anyone who has business to do with you, God, I pray that you would move in them right now. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.